Good morning, beloved. For the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, the five solas of the Reformation. If you don't know what those are, I'll explain it in just a moment. Uh, But before we begin, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together. We thank you for the salvation granted to us according to your grace, enabling us faith to believe according to the redemptive grand story of Scripture, of faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, for your glory alone, and most certainly for our benefit. Lord, help us now to understand the importance of Scripture, the gift of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. Today we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Question. Can we trust the Scriptures? You know, much of the uh, professing church in our day has moved away from the view that Scripture is infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and especially all-sufficient to lead us, to guide us, to counsel us, to define how, what, what life is to be, to define marriage and the person of God. Many professing believers have given way to the subtle attack that Scripture is not enough, adopting instead a belief that secular psychology offers something that Scripture does not, cannot. That the world provides a more potent remedy for the woes of life. Now, we might be prone to think that an attack on Scripture like that, um, on, on Scripture's inerrancy, infallibility, sufficiency, and so on, is a fairly recent assault of, say, perhaps the last 50 or 100 years or so. Uh, Truth of the matter is, uh, that's been the attack ever since the fall of man. In the Garden of Eden, where the question is raised, hath God said? So to help us understand a little bit of the debate, debates, I should say, that have raged for centuries, it's important that we understand the movement known as the Protestant Reformation. If you already know it, you're familiar with it, this will be a good reminder for you over the next five weeks. The issue of sola fide, faith alone, that justification before God is by faith alone, is one point or one principle that is most well known among Protestant believers. That is something specifically that separates us from Catholicism. And while sola fide, sola fide was a huge issue during the Protestant Reformation, it wasn't the main issue. The main issue during the Protestant Reformation was the subject of final authority. Who or what speaks for God? 
That's the question. That was the question. That remains the question. The Roman Catholic Church said then and continued to say to this day that the Roman Catholic Church, through its popes and its councils, are the final authority of God's word. The reformers, along with the apostles, along with the early church fathers, have always said that the final authority is the word of God. In other words, scripture alone speaks for God. So there's an impasse, isn't there? One of the central figures of the Protestant Reformation was Martin Luther, who nailed his 95 Theses of Contention to the door of the Wittenberg Castle in Germany. 95 issues of heretical theology and crimes against the Roman Catholic Church, its papal authority, he nailed to that door on the night of October 31st, 1517, All Hallows' Eve. His purpose was not to divide the church. His purpose was to reform the church. Now, although Luther is known, for the most part, as the champion of the discussion of justification by faith alone, it was actually his stand on the authority of Scripture that actually got him excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. Having openly declared the fallibility of man, including the Pope, including his councils, denying any divine authority being given to man at all. He stood against it. The simple conclusion, men could err, God cannot. In 1521, Luther appeared before the August assembly of the emperor, his princes, dukes, and the papal delegation of Rome. In other words, church and state. Bank that in your mind. And he was asked if he were prepared to recant the errors contained in his writings. He responded a day later, quote, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have frequently erred and contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. So for Luther the church fa- and the church fathers before him, along with the apostles, stood on the fact that it's God's word that is binding. It's God's word that is authoritative. Any words, any dreams, any visions of men, quite simply, are just that. They're of men. The reformers went on to to conclude scripture, interpret scripture. So the Reformation was a call to get back to scripture. It was a back to the Bible movement, if you will, quite simply. Back to the Bible. Now, out of that movement, five slogans were born, or in in Latin, five solas of the Reformation. 
that defined the way for a wayward church. Getting back to a faith that was once for all delivered. Five pillars which carry the theme of the word alone. Pillars that we here at Pacific Hope Church unashamedly embrace to define the realities of the gospel and the certainty of the whole counsel of God. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solo Christo, and Solo Deo Gloria. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Five solas, five pillars. And they teach us that that the church must maintain a scriptural direction as we continue to reform. The church always must be reforming. And today, we start with sola scriptura. The basis of which we find in 2 Timothy 3. Verse 14. Paul writing to Timothy. But as for you, continue in in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, people who've visited here over the last eight years have taken note of the word-centeredness of our worship. Some don't like it, so some don't come back. Some don't like the whole counsel of God, they don't come back. That's not a bad thing. Others, hungering for it, settle. All we're trying to do is provide consistency with God's word. Meaning, quite simply, we do what we do, not merely because of traditional allegiance. I've been in churches that are geared towards being given to traditional allegiance. And that in itself oftentimes can, believe it or not, lead away from the scripture. But we want to practice from out of scripture. Sola Scriptura is the application of of the belief that the Scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith for Christ's church. Not personal, political, subjective feelings. Not self-proclaimed prophets or dreamers. Not well-worn traditions, but... Scripture alone. Now, that's not to discount 
or ignore God's gifts to the church. Over time, God has gifted his church with pastors and teachers and scholars and theologian, theologians who provide, by the grace of God, great insight and commentary into the word of God. So to have the attitude that it's just me and my Bible, we don't need to read other books, that's pride. That's pride. I can point you to certain parts of Scripture. You'd have no way of interpreting them without some historical background. All Scripture, getting back to the point, that's a side note for anyone who has this just me and my Bible attitude. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. First, Scripture bears the quality of being exhaled by God. Exhaled by Almighty God. So it's having been breathed out gives us its authority and trustworthiness. It's authority and trustworthiness. So if we, finite men and women, you're finite, you realize that, amen? As finite men and women, if we're to believe it, if we're to hold to it, and it comes from an infinite God, it's going to have to be clear. Amen? Amen. Which leads us to the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. In other words, the clarity of Scripture, which is a cornerstone of evangelical belief ever since the Reformation, the perspicuity of Scripture. Scripture's clear, meaning that the central message of the Bible is clear and it's understandable. The Bible itself can be properly interpreted in a plain, normal sense. The perspicuity of Scripture. Now, the dominant Roman Catholic idea of the day was that the Bible was obscure and difficult to understand. The Reformers disagreed, arguing that anyone who could read could understand biblical teaching. William Tyndale came along, translated the Bible into English, the first one to do so, and believed the same. It could be understood by the common man. You know, rather than limiting biblical interpretation to the clergy or the magisterium, the reformers encouraged lay Christians to study to interpret and apply the word of God. The perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, the plain teaching of Scripture. Question. Do you believe in the clear teaching of the historicity of Adam? Meaning that he actually existed. And that he's not written about as a mere mystical figure 
along with the early chapters of Genesis as being allegorical. If you don't believe in the historicity of Adam, then you are in grave error, and you need counsel. And I say that lovingly. Because our understanding of the reality of Adam affects our understanding of the reality of sin and redemption and our one and only Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So it leads to many errors. If you think of the early chapters of Genesis as allegorical, let alone Adam as such. Anyone who rejects the biblical teaching regarding the historical Adam, the historical fall, will find no firm basis for accepting the biblical teaching regarding the historical incarnate redeemer. Are you with me? In 1 Corinthians 15, in Romans chapter 5, Paul places Adam and Jesus in parallel relationship. He calls Jesus the second Adam. He goes on to refer to Jesus as the last Adam. We read in the Bible, we read in the New Testament, that sin entered the world through the one action of the one historical man, Adam. So, an allegorical first Adam can only lead to an allegorical second Adam making your literal sin unatoned for. Now you really have a problem. It makes you destined for hell. Another error that may bunch some britches this morning is the belief of anything, you ready for this, but a literal six-day creation. Whether one believes in the gap theory of Genesis 1 and 2, The day-age theory, which teaches each day consists of thousands or millions of years, or the framework hypothesis, where days are simply an artistic literary device to create this framework for a lengthy period of development. If you believe, I'm not saying you're a heretic, okay? I'm not saying you're an apostate. I'm simply saying that none of those views are the result of the perspicuity of Scripture. That is, the plain reading of the biblical text, but quite simply are the result of secular academic pressure and intimidation. Period. For instance, certain theologians have admitted, theologians, professional theologians, have admitted over time that their adoption, here's one example, of the, fra- of the framework hypothesis was born out of desperation to fit the Bible into, quote-unquote, the alleged facts of science, which is what? Secular intimidation and pressure. Academic pressure and intimidation. So if you believe in the gap theory or one of these other things, you didn't come 
You didn't draw that out of the text by way of a simple reading of the text. 2008, I think it was, R.C. Sproul, theologian, great theologian of our day, said this, quote, For most of my teaching career, I considered the framework hypothesis to be a possibility. I've now changed my mind. I now hold to a literal six-day creation. Genesis says that God created the universe and everything in it in six 24-hour periods. One must do a great deal of hermeneutical gymnastics to escape the plain meaning of Genesis 1 and 2. End quote. The doctrine of biblical perspicuity is critical to the life and mission of the church. If believers cannot know with any degree of assurance that they accurately understand God's word, they have no hope of rightly applying the word of God to their lives. A Bible that is ambiguous, a Bible that is hazy or vague, produces doctrine that is unclear and indefensible. Anybody britches in a bind? (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. Okay, this is not how Scripture defines itself. In 2 Timothy 3.16. All believers are commanded to know, to defend, and apply sound doctrine. God's word takes precedence. In Psalm 138. We read, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. Why has God magnified his word above his name or equal to his name? Quite simply because a name is only as good as the word of the person behind the name. A man's name is valued when his, word is, when his word is trustworthy and good. And a man's name naturally communicates the integrity of the man. So what God sanctions with his name will never be inconsistent, will never be contradict, contradictory to that which he has revealed about himself. God's name is holy. He's sanctified his name by magnifying his word as equivalent to his name. Amen? So, Sola Scriptura separates us from Roman Catholicism. It separates us from all cults, all other isms, that are out there. And Sola Scriptura even separates us from a large portion of evangelicalism and Protestantism who have become liberal, who no longer adhere to a view that Scripture alone is the authority. Sola Scriptura. They've moved away from that. Now, in our day, as well in the, as in the days of the apostles, 
there were false teachers, pseudo-theologians, who deny the prophetic word. Take a look at 2 Peter 1. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, That no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, false teachers in this day were making this astonishing claim that the apostles invented the parousia. That is the second coming of Jesus. that it was a a cleverly devised myth. Peter refutes the charge by reminding his audience that he was an eyewitness of the transfiguration. You remember that? Matthew 17? Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured from a human body to, to glory before their very eyes, which was an affirmative sign of Jesus' glory that will be made manifest when he returns. So having seen his glory once, the apostles could be sure that they would see it again, according to the prophets, the prophetic word. So here we read that we not only, Peter that is, has an eyewitness testimony, or can provide an eyewitness testimony, testimony, Confirming that Jesus will return, we also have, as Peter affirms, something surer, that is the prophetic word, verse 19. Now, it's unlikely that Peter viewed his own testimony of the glorified Christ as any less reliable than Old Testament prophecy. After all, he was an apostle who was given a position to speak for God. Amen? Instead, what he seems to mean here is that the deposit of the prophecies about the second coming in the Old Testament were only further confirmed by his eyewitness account of the transfiguration. You get it? Further confirmed. In other words, his eyewitness account only confirms what was already written. The prophetic word about the Christ. And that's why Peter's so insistent in verse 21 to remind us that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. But all prophecies in Scripture come from God who moved his prophets by the power of the Spirit to write his 
word. Therefore, the words of Scripture must be believed, must be obeyed. As he came the first time, which was promised, according to the prophets, he will come a second time in glory. Amen. And only those who do not know God will question the authority of Scripture. God's word is not to be ignored. God's word is not to be questioned, but it is to be declared and affirmed. What did Jesus say? If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Indeed. In other words, it's his word that defines us. His word. We're bound by his living word. So, sola scriptura is a view that God's word is not subject to correction, to change, to censorship. That's why we're adamant about balanced preaching. Because balanced preaching doesn't ignore the difficult texts. It's easy to skip over certain things like, you know, Romans 9. Or Genesis, what, 38, a few weeks ago. Balanced preaching is fair with whatever text we're in. Okay, now, along with sola scriptura is what's known as tota Scriptura. I think Calvin coined that phrase, tota scriptura, which means all of scripture. Referring to the fact that we have a complete canon. Canon's closed. Canon means measuring rod. We measure everything to the word of God. So we actually preach and practice from all of scripture. Sola scriptura, tota scriptura. You know, many Protestant churches don't, don't preach from all of it because they don't want all of it. But we're exposed not only to the texts that make us feel good, right? We're also exposed to texts that make us feel less than jovial or chipper. So we mustn't skip or dodge the tough or transparent passages. Now, sola and tota scriptura, scriptura together, is one of the reasons that makes us reformed and credo Baptist. Being reformed and credo meaning we believe in believer's baptism, causes an historical tension and an actual stigma to be laid upon us. Because some of our Reformed brothers will say, we shouldn't refer to ourselves as Reformed since we don't adhere to paedo-baptism, which is a foolish limitation of the use of the term. Because on one hand, we most certainly honor 
the memory in the labor of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. I'll be honest with you. I don't have hardly any, there are some, Baptist theologians' writings in my office compared to Pado-Baptist theologians. So on the one hand, as we honor these men, on the, all, on the other, beloved, it's very important that we remember that they were involved in a magisterial reformation. Okay? Very important. They were involved in a magisterial reformation. The church and state were fused together, and the state had an enormous say-so over the church. And as such, they didn't quite reform far enough. Listen to a couple interesting notations. On January 17, 1525, the public was notified in Zurich, Switzerland that all parents were ordered to have their children baptized within a week upon the pain of banishment. It's from Leonard Verduin, reformers and their stepchildren, from his book, who, by the way, was a reformed guy. In 1534, the Protestant city of Strasbourg, France, decreed that no child was to be left unbaptized and that children so left unbaptized would be baptized by the officers of the law, end quote. Now, Ulrich Zwingli waffled back and forth. And on one occasion, he said this, quote, nothing grieves me more than that at the present I have to baptize children, for I know it ought not to be done. If we were to baptize as Christ instituted it, then we would not baptize any person until he has reached the years of discretion. For I find it nowhere written that infant baptism is to be practiced. Only to do an about face, saying this, quote, <coughs> excuse me, getting over a cold. However, one must practice infant baptism so as not to offend our fellow men. It's better not to preach it until the world is ready to take it, end quote. So why did he draw back from what he thought had biblical warrant to that which didn't? One Reformation historian writes, quote, To find the answer to this question, one must remember that the former course was frightfully radical. To propose to terminate christening in a sacral society was to propose a pretty radical thing, end quote. Now this same historian goes on to write that, quote, Luther was too well aware of the radicalness of a clean break with it to abandon the sacralism-feeding institution, end quote. Luther even said this, quote, There's not sufficient evidence from Scripture that one might justify the introduction of infant baptism at the time of the early Christians after the apostolic period, but no one may venture with a good conscience to reject or abandon infant baptism, which has for so long a time been practiced, end quote. Needless to say, that amounts to a violation of Luther's sola scriptura doctrine. Which moves dangerously close to the Catholic position of scripture plus tradition.
We believe it to be, here in this church, we believe it to be clearly fundamental that the pedo-baptist position is based on and birthed out of a tradition that cannot stand the examination of Scripture. Sola and tota scriptura, scriptura, is the reason that I abandoned the pedo-baptist view. I used to adhere to it. I was raised in it. I had my son baptized 26 years ago, 25 years ago, in the beloved OPC. But it was through study, as I studied it out, it, it couldn't stand. I mean, we, we, I grew up doing this and didn't know why. As a matter of fact, one Presbyterian professor, Frank James, candidly states the difficulty of grasping the logic of a Reformed Pado-Baptist position. He said this, okay, this is a Presbyterian professor, quote, if I may hazard a generality, I'm quite convinced most Presbyterians, whether in the pulpit or the pew, do not understand clearly why they baptize their infants. If asked to explain why Presbyterians baptize infants, I would expect that many would stumble and blunder the explanation, end quote. Over the years, I've known young men who enter a Reformed seminary firmly hoard, holding to a credo-baptist position until, mysteriously, the final weeks before graduation. I wonder why. It's certainly not because of Scripture. They can sit down with a professor in one hour, can convince them otherwise, now, I can understand from the framework laid over Scripture, yes, I understand, but not from sola and tota scriptura. I cannot. My, po- my personal belief for these young fellas is that it's far easier to find a job, pastoral position, in reform circles by embracing the tradition, much easier than to go start a church with reformed biblical views, including a firm belief in believer's baptism. It's a lot easier to find a job. So that's my personal conclusion to the flip-flop. Now, understand this. I have many dear brothers and many dear sisters, including my own personal family members, attached to uh, Presbyterian churches, Reformed churches, Wells Lutheran churches, and United Reformed and Wells Lutheran are very similar. So I have friends and family in all those circles who I love and respect and honor, and we're all going to share in God's glory together one day. However... However, if they were consistent in sola and tota scriptura, they would have to abandon their pedo-baptist position. And they'd have to admit it's a human tradition. Jesus said, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, the disciples you make, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
You know why Jesus didn't say baptizing them and their children? You know why he didn't say it? Because he never intended to say it. <laughs> it's pretty simple. So as people come, we welcome anyone who comes here. If people ever question, why don't we baptize children? Or people start to have children and they start getting nervous. Uh, I'd feel a lot better that my kid's going to be in the kingdom if he's baptized. Based on what? Because we all want our children to go to heaven. Sprinkling them with water isn't going to get them there. Because you end up throwing out all of your reform soteriology right out the window. Is God sovereign? Who's going to be saved? God's elect. Chosen when? Before the foundation of the earth. If they're elect, will they come to faith? Yes. How? By way of the effectual call. Right? Given when? Right? Well, they're born again. They'll be born again. When? Well, that's a mystery. How does it happen? As the wind blows to and fro, you do not know where it comes from, nor where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. They're birthed in, realizing that they have union with God through Christ. And therefore, to proclaim that union publicly, they profess that faith publicly. And if they've been given time to manifest the reality that this union is real, they testify to that reality by becoming publicly baptized, identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which is drawn out of sola scriptura and tota scriptura. So we honor the reformers. I mean, I have etchings of them in my house and in my study. We honor the reformers so far as they went, especially being in the situation that they were in. A magisterial reformation. So I think it's safe to say that not even the reformers would stand and declare, guys, no more reformation needed. It starts and it ends with us. We're the ultimate standard. They would never say that. The church is always reforming, seeking to hear, seeking to understand more clearly according to sola scriptura and tota scriptura, so as to more greatly honor its author, God Almighty. For you, the psalmist declares, have magnified your word above all your name. So, men of God, called by God, enabled by the Holy Spirit of God, are to proclaim it, teach it, and help people understand it and how it applies to their lives because his word stands alone. Sola Scriptura. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Being finite as we are, help us to understand more of you, our infinite, mighty God. 
as we look to Scripture and to apply Scripture to our lives for your glory and the good of your people, your precious bride, the church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.